Yeah, we have two slides left on this PowerPoint. I haven't been in a big hurry because I knew there would be a lot of discussion about these signs and wonders and Philip, I got his name right, Eric. <laughs> Philip and Simon and what are the significance of the signs. So I knew there'd be a lot of discussion. That's just fine. That's why we are here. So, Brian, you have the mic. Read the text, Acts 8, 9 through 13, and then we'll start where we left off last week. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria... No, that's enough. Oh, okay. Okay, thanks. No, you're... you're hey... You're on a roll, yeah. Just couldn't stop. All right, we are on verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed so we're going to as you know I'm sure you've read ahead Simon turns out to not really be a believer have you read ahead <laughs> Peter rebukes him so we need to start right here analyzing what's being said now I will say this in the Gospels and in Acts, the term believe has a range of meaning. And not everyone who has some sort of faith, who is said to believe, turns out to be a regenerate Christian. If you want a really interesting example, look at John 8. I know that's not part of Luke-Acts, but it's still an important Gospel record. In John 8... Jesus is preaching, and some of the Jews believe. And Jesus said to those who believed, if you continue, meno, abide, in my word, you'll be my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What happened? That made them mad. The believers. Oh, we've never been in bondage. We're Abraham's children. Now, do you remember the dialogue between Jesus and these Jewish leaders? It got more heated and more heated, and he finally told them they were of their father, the devil, and they totally rejected Jesus. So we need to be aware that in the Bible, 
There are people who believe, whose faith, when tested, turns out to be something less than true saving faith. I think that's undeniable. Yes, Brian. Um, We see an external uh, belief. There's no actual circumcision of the heart. And we see that with, like, these TV preachers who they're only in it for their own personal gain. Yeah, they all claim to have faith. And some of them say they're word of faith. But their idea of faith is faith in their own words in some cases. Now, let's see if we can unpack this whole thing with Simon. Just a little bit even starting here. Hey, say, Bob. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Let me just add one thing to this discussion. What's interesting is oftentimes the Bible uses what we call phenomenal logical language. It's the way it appears. And um, we see an example of that. For example, if you turn your Bibles to 2 Peter 2 and start in verse 20, it seems as if people are believers, but it's only the appearance. It's not reality. But they'll be described as if they believed. But it's not genuine, as Bob pointed out. When further testing comes, they don't have genuine faith. And you see another example of this in Second Peter 2.20. Paul, or Peter, rather, is talking about the false teachers. He says, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ. Now, right there, it sounds like they're believers. But then he says, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then he says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit. Oh, yeah. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to the wallow in the mire. Now, that proverb is very important, I think, because it shows what Peter's saying is, look, they really were dogs all the time. They were really pigs all the time. It seemed that they were saints, but a true pig always goes back to the mire. Oh, yeah. They were really that all along. And so what you're saying, Bob, is, look, Simon appeared to be a believer, but in reality, he really isn't. Yeah, because he got on board. Yeah, amen. So what happens after sometimes reveals if faith is truly genuine. Genuine faith will be Im- willing to embrace discipleship. Because remember Acts, excuse me, Matthew 28, go make disciples, that's the imperative command. And so those who believe, we make disciples, but if they say, oh no, I don't want anything to do with that, I don't want to really follow Jesus and submit to him, or I don't want the cross, well, you should be preaching that to start with, but people will initially believe. Now, we have some hints about Simon already in this verse 13. Simon himself believed after being baptized. Okay, so he was baptized like everybody else. And then it said he continued on with Philip. Now, that is a little hint here about what's going on. Continued on in the Greek is the same word used in Acts 2.42, for devotion to the apostles' teaching into fellowship and prayer and breaking bread. What I think is going on was Philip's signs 
which were really gods, not Phillips, that accompanied his preaching, were so powerful and so profound that Philip, excuse me, Simon was really impressed. This guy's got better stuff than I do. Because the magic arts were a lucrative thing. And he is not devoted to Christ. He's devoted to Philip. And what used to happen with the magic arts, and I think it's still true today, is you had to be a disciple of someone who was practicing these things and learn their trade and learn their secrets. And then perhaps one day you could do the same thing. Okay, so he wants to be a sorcerer's apprentice because he doesn't recognize the uniqueness of Christ in the gospel. He just thinks these are better. Now, we're going to find out that this analysis is true because I see I read ahead. <laughs> Later, when the Holy Spirit falls on people, he wants that too. You see, Philip did these other signs and there were demons going out and things. Now the apostles come, the Holy Spirit falls on these people, and he thinks, okay, I want that. I want, I want what Philip has. I want this. I want the whole ball of wax. How much is it going to cost? Because if you were a magician, you had to pay for your information. You don't get it for free. You pay for it. Later in Acts, when in Ephesus a bunch of people believed, they burned what? Anybody remember? Books of the magic arts. Those were valuable documents. They were the secrets of the trade. And you guard those secrets because otherwise, if anybody can do these things, it's not worth anything. You guard your magical secrets. Now, I believe that Philip, and with looking at all the evidence, wanted to be devoted. Now, excuse me. I finally got Stephen out of there. Now I'm calling Simon Philip. Simon wanted what Philip had. So he's willing to do what everybody else was doing to be part of the deal. Because he was devoted, according to the Greek, to Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. That's what he was interested he was constantly amazed. Now, the word amazed is the one I introduced to you last week. Amazed is the word existemi, from histemi, to stand, and ek, out of. And as I said last week, existemi became the root for our word ecstasy. And it's also used in some context to be out of your mind. But it doesn't always mean that, but to be sort of beside oneself. Wow, that was mind-blowing. Isn't that what people say now? Is that this was out of this world. So he's 
exits to be ecstatic about these signs and miracles. Now, amazed isn't always bad because sometimes the people are amazed at the gospel and become Christians. So in this case, Philip was the real man of God, and what God did when he preached was the real power of God. Dr. Parsons says, Philip and Simon are both active in a Samaritan city. They both perform wondrous deeds, says Parsons, and they make speeches. Large numbers of the Samaritans paid close attention to both of them. Simon is called the Great Power, 8.10, and amazes, 8.9 and 11, the Samaritans, while Philip works great miracles, 8.13, and amazes Simon, 8.13. Luke says, I'm going to continue with Parsons, Luke concedes that outwardly there are similarities between Christian miracle workers and magicians. But then uh, argues, Luke does, that the similarities are only superficial. At a deeper level, there are profound differences between Christian miracles and pagan magic. And so then he goes on and says, this is going to happen again. Actually, later they wanted to make sacrifices to Paul, thinking, oh, the gods have come. Now, I want to make an application of this, okay? The difference between Philip and Simon was that Philip was preaching Christ as the only way to God. And he was preaching forgiveness and so on, the Christian gospel. He was Yuan Galizo to go- gospeling, to gospel. And he proclaimed Christ. Philip was proclaiming, proclaiming himself, or at least accepting the accolades of being the great power of God. What's that? Simon! It's too early in the morning. All right. For all future reference, Simon's the sorcerer, Philip's the gospel preacher. I'm as bad as my dad. When he was older, we had five boys, and he'd want to say one of us, and he'd go through the list. David, Wayne, no, Rick, Gary, then my uncle Claudie, no, oh, Bob, Bobby, yeah, he was He'd go through all the names until he hit one of us he was actually talking to. I'm doing that today. The older I get, I get like my dad. All right, back to our text. Simon proclaimed himself as the great power of God. Philip proclaimed Christ as the only way to God. And that's where we get the difference. Now, can you make an application? Remember last week, I passed around that sheet. This guy was a comedian, and he was a prophet. He could interpret signs and omens. He could even tell you the meaning of your own tattoos. 
if you don't have any tattoos, the meaning is you got good sense. <laughs> okay. But nevertheless, can you see the difference? Anybody want to comment before we go on here? Yes. Uh, uh, thank you. I'll, I'll get them right. You had uh, Simon, you had Philip. White hat, black, uh, you know, the white hat, black hat. I mean, the white hat, Philip, he knew what was going on. He had had a relationship with Jesus, and that's the way it was. Uh, you had Simon, the black hat, who we knew to be the black hat, the antithesis of who Philip is. I I'm, think I'm pretty well correct in that. Yet the people surrounding him only see, they don't see the, that. They wouldn't know. They wouldn't know. No. They only see the signs and the wonders. Exactly. That's why you have to see the outcome. You have to listen and pay attention. Listen and pay attention. The preaching will reveal the truth. The guys on TV who claim to be, they're, they're just like Simon, and they don't even blush. They send out emails. I get on the email list just to see what they're up to. They claim to be the great power of God, just like Simon. They say, we're going to go to this city, and we're going to have a miracle meeting. Well, how do you know God's going to do miracles? How do you know that? You don't know that. What you can control is what you preach, unless you're a magician. And it could be these people are magicians. And that's why they know they can have a miracle meeting. Okay. Say, Bob, it reminds me of... Go a, ahead, yeah. It reminds me of a point you had made earlier in our studies in Acts. When the Sanhedrin tried to prohibit the apostles, they didn't mind them doing miracles. What bothered them was preaching the gospel. They told them not to preach Christ. And that ties into... Remember the message you gave about what's a work of the Spirit? Well, work of the Spirit is the confession of Christ. That's ultimately yeah. what matters. Yeah, the true work of the Spirit... Is Christ. Yes, Mike. Um, if you covered this already, I apologize, but uh, the very first part of this verse, even Simon himself believed. Okay, now he, uh, when I, that always used to bother me because I'd say, wait a minute, if he believed, and then Christ will not lose any that the Father has given me. He believed in the signs and the wonders, but he did not believe in Christ. And, and, and just clarification there. Well, it doesn't tell us right there. A little earlier, Mike, I mentioned that the term believe in the New Testament has a range of meanings. And I, I went to uh, John 8, where the Pharisees believed, and then they wanted to kill Jesus later. Okay, so when a bunch of crowd, people in a crowd listen and give a positive example, and then he wanted to be baptized, for sure when he was baptized, he would have been baptized in probably in Acts, they baptized in the name of Jesus. Matthew says, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But it had to be in the name of God, right? Right. So at this point, we don't know yet. But there's little clues in the text. Later, when the Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritans, and he wants to buy it, then Peter says, you're not right with God. Exactly. Thank you. All right, so initial response is not always saving faith, but we don't know. Now, I think I mentioned this. I know I did last week. 
the early church, I mean, early in church history, came up with this idea that you have to catechize people for a long time, in some cases years, before you allow them to be baptized. We don't want anybody who isn't serious, so we're going to make you jump through many, many hoops before you're ever allowed to be baptized. And I'm saying, based on the pattern in Acts, a little bit later we'll talk about the Ethiopian eunuch, is that when people believe, they were baptized. That's what happened with Simon. If their faith turns out to be not genuine, well, then they're put under church discipline or they leave of their own accord. Or Peter said, you and your money can perish together. Right? They weren't wringing their hands. How did we baptize that we shouldn't have baptized them? It doesn't say that. It's just, okay, it wasn't the real thing. There was not this magical view of baptism that baptism of its own self imparted salvation. And so if someone does not have genuine faith and they're baptized, they're still lost. Peter, tell us about it. Not the washing of the flesh. What did Peter say? Yeah, but, but appeal to God for a good conscience. A good conscience in First Peter three. Yeah, and, and I was thinking of First uh, Corinthians ten. Paul says, "Look, Israel had baptism; they were baptized in Moses, and yet they still fell in the wilderness. Why? Because of unbelief. They had the Lord's supper. They too. had the Lord's supper. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So on the day of judgment, you're going to say, "I was baptized, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. <laughs> Open the doors." Here I come. You ever seen that at a funeral? Oh, yeah. People, I saw that at a funeral. A person that we knew, friends of ours from way back, uh, had a sister who was just never served God, wouldn't serve God, just lived for the devil, and died fairly early death. So I went to the funeral to support my friend, and the pastor said, we know she's in heaven, she was baptized. She had no desire to serve God. So how could a pastor at a funeral pronounce her saved because she was baptized as an infant? That's what they do. If baptism saved people, how come it didn't save Simon? Am I getting in enough trouble? Time for the next slide? All right. That's enough trouble for now. Last slide on this presentation. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. Oh, I'm going back to Luke, and then we're going to go forward. Excuse me. This is Luke Acts. Remember Luke Acts, the two-volume work? Jesus predicted these kind of things would happen. That's why I have this slide. We're doing a review, Luke 11, 29, 30. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah 
For just as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. What kind of sign was Jonah to the Ninevites compared to the sign for this generation? Who wants to answer? Eric over here. Well, I'll take the chance. <laughs> I might have this wrong, but, you know, Jonah was in the fish for three days, and I have heard people who study this and, you know, uh, and I believe this. I think he looked a little different <laughs> after three days. Partially digested? I think, I think that uh, they could see, you know. So he, he rebelled against God, Jonah did, unlike Jesus Christ. But he rebelled, but God dealt with that and said, you got to do this. And so it's, it's the three days in the, in the, in the fish, yeah. and it's that different. There was something different about him. Well, I think it also prefigures Jesus, right? Amen. Three days in the belly of the earth. Right. Amen. Okay. So go ahead. Bring it to Mike back there. Question for you, and I, I guess this is not in the scripture. We don't really know, but the sign of Jonah, you know, he was in the belly of the fish like the grave basically for three days. He came out and uh, in my, just I'm wondering who can survive in the belly of a fish for three days? Nobody. There's no oxygen in there. It, we don't know. The scriptures don't tell us if he was resurrected from the dead, Jonah, uh, uh, actually. But um, is there any yeah, it yeah, doesn't tell us all. Yeah. The only point is the three days yep. down in, the belly. back and out. Yes. Jesus is three days in and back out. Yeah. And he comes back to life. Right. And figuratively, at least Jonah did. Yes. Now, as it says here on my slide, signs signify. Greek word is sema, sign. Signs signify. Somebody says, well, I went to a signs and wonders meeting. Okay, what was signified? Oh, that the evangelist was a great man of God and should give him his, our money. Yeah. Wrong. Wrong, that's not the sign. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it signified that he is indeed the Jewish Messiah. The one David wrote about, Psalm 110 and elsewhere. The ones the prophets predicted, Isaiah 53 and elsewhere. The one who himself, Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, predicted his own resurrection from the dead. And Jesus, when he was raised, proved that all his claims were true. Yes. I was thinking about um, what Jesus said about the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man wanted to go back and tell you know, his brothers and warn them. Good one. He said if, if they don't want to believe the scriptures, they're certainly not going to believe a miracle of you coming back to life. Yeah, they won't like believe. They didn't believe Jesus even yeah. when his resurrection. Yeah, they, and it's still almost prophetic there because 
If they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if a man comes from back from the dead. Jesus did come from back from the dead. And Peter, on the day of Pentecost, preached Christ, who was raised before witnesses, and bodily ascended to heaven. He preached him from the prophets, didn't he? He said, David said, thou will not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. Peter said, David's tomb is here to this day, and David's in it. So he can't be talking about David. He's going to be talking about Christ. I have a passage for somebody to read, Acts 17.31. If you want to all turn to it, it's one you need to know. Otherwise, I'll read it. Acts 17.31. This was Paul preaching to the Athenian philosophers. So this is one of the more profound and interesting encounters in the book of Acts. Paul goes into Athens where the brilliant philosophers debated, and he goes in there and preaches Christ. And this is the end of Paul's address. I'll read it. About Christ. He was preaching Christ in the resurrection. Because, says Paul, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Who is this proof for? Everyone. Men there is a generic term for persons. He furnished proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. If we refuse to believe in Christ, even though he was raised from the dead, we're still lost. There's a man, interesting guy, by the way. We used to have a video, a VHS video of, of this guy. His name is Pincus Lapide. Anybody ever heard of him? Pincus Lapide? Eric over here has. Pincus Lapide is a rabbi and who set out to examine all the evidence of the Christian claims. And in particularly, Rabbi Lapide wanted to know if there was any evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so he did so. He examined all of the historical evidence that he could and came to the conclusion that Jesus was really raised from the dead, as the Christians claimed. And then people would think, great, a new convert. But it's sad, it's sad. It's an interesting case. He wrote a book called The Resurrection of Jesus, A Jewish Perspective. And Rabbi Lapid determined that Jesus was really raised from the dead, but he's just for the Gentiles, and he doesn't need Christ himself. That's what the rabbi decided. I don't say that to shame the rabbi because I think it's honorable that he examined the evidence. Evidence will point us in the right direction. When I was a science and engineering student at Iowa State, it was 
evidence from molecules, particularly the heme molecule that carries oxygen in the blood, that led me to believe in God. I had given up on the church and I'd given up on religion. And I was a first year student and I sat in an organic chemistry class. I remember the day and where I was sitting and exactly what was up there on the board with this heme molecule. And in my mind, I said, evolution is false. I believe God created the world. That's more than I got from the church. Because they were liberal. They didn't believe anything. I had given up on that. Remember I told you the story once? A, a pastor told me, don't worry about my doubts about the Bible. It's not true anyhow. Three months later, I became a Christian. But the evidence points to the truth. And Paul says this. Now we have these neo-Orthodox and now emergent, which is, I think, just a development of neo-orthodoxy, who say you have to take a blind leap. You can't expect evidence to verify anything about Christianity. Faith is a blind leap. You believe, and belief is self-actualizing. That's what they say. And I'm saying Paul didn't look at it that way. Paul said that the resurrection proved the, the reality of Christ's claims and did so to all people. And therefore, Paul talks about judgment, he's going to judge the world through this man. Look at this, Acts 17.31. He's fixed today in which he'll judge the world. So you could say, oh, nobody can believe evidence that's a throwback to Enlightenment rationalism. That's what the emergents say. You can't know any of these things. They are the little engine they couldn't. You can't know, you can't know, you can't know, you can't know. And Paul says, you can't know. And not only can you know, but on the day of judgment, you'll be accountable to God based on this that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, I was in a church that was just fully liberal. Liberalism says you can't believe any miracles. So liberalism says the Bible contains the word of God. Neo-orthodoxy says the Bible becomes the word of God when you take this blind leap of faith. Orthodoxy says the Bible is the word of God. Jesus was raised from the dead. I was so offended when they told me, no, none of these miracles happen at a church camp. And I said, why did I have to sit in church for however many years I had to until I escaped and say the, hey, somebody likes this. I'm appealing to a certain crowd. The under two crowd. <laughs> Anyhow, why did I have to sit in church and swear to believe in the resurrection only to find out it never happened. We need to believe. Now we finish that PowerPoint and we're gonna launch the next one. You already have it. Say Bob, is your I'll just kind of fill in a little bit while you're doing this. One thing that I think is interesting in that uh, Luke eleven is the phrase this generation. 
Yes. And, and you wrote an article about that. And I mm -hmm. just want to turn everyone's attention. Bob has a CIC article that he had written about this generation. This generation is not being used for a f as a 40-year window exactly. of people. But it's actually being used as a pejorative for people really for all time during this age who are characterized like the Jewish leadership was with unbelief. So this generation is characterized by unbelief. And when Jesus says there's no sign except the sign of Jonah, consider that in our eschatology. We laid out in the Olivet Discourse that all of the signs happen when? Within the 70th week of Daniel. Well, when does the 70th week of Daniel happen? It's imminent. So there's no sign to tip you off as to when he comes. Why? Because no sign is going to be given except the sign of Jonah, the resurrection. Amen. And so we, um, this is a way we can kind of put some of these things together. This generation is not a 40-year window. It's, a whole, it's all unbelievers, all people in this church age who are characterized by disbelief in the Messiah. That's, and, and Bob yeah, proves that in his I, article. I wrote an article proving that. I used it in a debate with an amillennialist. Interesting what some of the amillennialists said about my article. One said to me, well, I never heard that before. Well, I don't care. I think it's valid. I don't care if you heard it. Is this a valid argument? They couldn't argue. Why? Because if it was a 40-year time period, there were people in that period who did believe. It wasn't universal unbelief. It was just a moral statement about the ones who refused to believe in Christ even though he was raised. But you can go read the article on CIC. Next section, we, we're making progress. Eric, do you, do you want to read it? Sure. Acts yeah. 8, 14 to 17. 8, 14 to 17. It says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they went to them, Peter and, excuse me, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, had, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay. Very good. Very interesting. Let's go to verse 14. And I want to help you understand this. It's really important. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard... Samaria had received the word of God. They sent Peter and John. So we know from Acts 8, 1, they, had they stayed in Jerusalem. So it was Philip who brought the gospel to the Samaritans. And that they were willing to send apostles to check this out is a very good thing. Because previously the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans was great. And I'll point this out a little later, but in Luke 9, the Samaritans refused to welcome Christ. And so that was a bad thing. So the word apostello there, apostle, sent once, and so they're, they're receiving, and there's ascending. And in John 4, we see a little preview, the Samaritan woman at the well. Remember Jesus talking to her and how she went and got her friends and she wanted to raise a debate that they had between Jerusalem and Ger the Mount of, in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount and Mount 
Gerizim. They wanted, she wanted to debate that. And Jesus said, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. It won't matter their location on the earth. It won't matter if you're in Jerusalem or Samaria. You can be anywhere in the whole world and come to faith and worship in the spirit. That's what Jesus said in John 4. And then John 4, 14, it said, but whoever drinks of the water, Jesus said that I will give him, shall never thirst. But the water I will give will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Okay, so the gospel goes to Samaria. Now there's a word here, received. I have it on the slide. Decomai. This becomes a key word in Luke Acts. And in Luke Acts, in the Greek Bible, this word decomai was often used to describe either receiving salvation or not. The ones who welcome Jesus, decomai or apodecomai, same word with an intensifying prefix, are welcoming salvation. Those who reject Jesus are pushing away God's offer to bring them into the people of God. So the apostles are sent because they heard Samaritans receive. Now, let me go. I think I got a slide here for you. Ah, look at that. Summary slide. I looked it up in the Greek and found all the times decomize used in Luke Acts. And it's used as receiving the gospel or not. It's used in the parable of the, of the soils. Luke 8, 13. There were those who received the word but fall away. That'll end up being Simon, won't it? Luke 9, 48. Jesus said, whoever decomai welcomes a child welcomes me. Remember they wanted to turn away the children? Jesus said, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. Decomai. Now here's the salient one. I have a reading and I ran it by Eric and he said, I get coffee for the whole year. <laughs> right. this is my, you're going to see my reading. For those of you who are new, we have a little thing where if somebody has a really good reading of understanding the Bible, they get free coffee. Of course, you get it anyhow, don't you? <laughs> Luke 9:53. This is the Samaritans. Jesus and the apostles go into Samaria on a preaching mission. And it says in Luke 9:53, they did not receive him. They did not receive him. Decomai, not decomai. So let's fast forward and I'll go through the rest of these. The apostles were there with Jesus on that mission when the Samaritans rejected him. He refused to receive. Now, 
they hear that the Samaritans, Decomai, do receive. So there's been a total reversal of the status of the Samaritans. First they rejected, now they receive. And John was one of them who was there when they rejected. Are you following this? So they go, oh, now the Samaritans receive. Luke 10.8, they receive you. Luke 10.10, they do not receive you. So that's how you tell where to go. You go, they don't receive you, go somewhere else. They receive you, stay. Luke 18.17, to receive the kingdom, to welcome. Acts 8.14, Samaria received the word. Now they welcomed what in Luke 9.53 they rejected. Acts 11.1, Gentiles received the word. Acts 17.11, the Bereans received the word. When someone comes with the true gospel and accurately preaches to you the word of God, that person should be received. They should be welcomed. Yes? going to say uh, up until um, Abraham there really wasn't a Jewish race so God's always received those who by faith and believing in him you know that that follow him and that look to him as their that's savior. true so. that's true if we believe and receive God will bless us whoever we are and we see that in the gospels there were unexpected people who received Christ there were Gentiles who believed. There were people like a soldier, remember the you know, guy who had great power, a general? Received. So, according to Luke Acts, two-volume work, how we receive the true message is absolutely essential. Well, let's look at a few passages, and I want to go back and make a connection here. Luke 10, 8, whatever city you enter, and they receive you, eat what is set before you. In other words, enter into table fellowship with them. Luke 10, 10, whatever city you enter, they do not receive you. Go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Very Middle Eastern. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. If you ever get a chance to read Bailey's book on Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, it's well worth it. In the Middle East, a lot of these things are exactly the same as they were then. A shame-honor society. And when somebody's shamed, they're going to be very, very angry. And if they're honored, they're treated as your long-lost best friend. Well, I hope I get this word right, but this whole slide could be like compatibilism, where God commands something and then man has the ability? Well, if we do receive him, it's because of a prior work of grace. So that would be compatibilism, but we actually do receive. Would you agree? You're going to do that in Canada. Yeah, amen, exactly. We'll talk about that even today with original sin in Romans 5, but you're right. It's 
God commands, we have inability, but yet he gives the ability to believe. So, yeah. Is it on? Yeah. Uh, I'm actually making kind of a joke here. <laughs> uh, Luke 10.10, 10, okay? You know, it's just, yeah, wasn't that funny? <laughs> it was very funny. You know, you know, nowadays there's a lot of churches that say if, they, if people don't receive the gospel, we better make it, we better address their felt needs and all of that, you know? And so the joke would be, well, certainly the Bible must have translated something wrong here when Jesus said, if they do not receive you, you, you leave. You go to those who will. Now, the, the church writ large, I guess, there's so many uh, denominations and groups, they reject that. They, they, yeah. they want us to be, you know, they, they want all... And well, they, we need to change our message, Yeah, and so it's a terrible tragedy what they're doing. Yeah, they don't... I'm going to talk about that in Canada, by the way, in our preaching mission. I'm going to talk about how the seeker movement really goes astray and you make the church something God didn't intend. I want to get to this reading now. If you want to, let's all do this, and I want to give you my reading. Turn to Luke 9.52, and keep your finger there, Luke 9.52 through 55. Turn there, and I'll read it, and then we're going to make an application of what happens in Samaria. Luke 9:52. And he sent his messengers ahead of him, as Jesus sent them. They went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him. Decomai, no welcome here. You're not gonna, you're not gonna eat with us. They did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Why? Because they ate the Jews. And they will receive a man traveling toward Jerusalem. If you remember Luke, the entire travel narrative, starting right here, the last half of Luke is all about going to Jerusalem. And there's a big, long chiasm. Bailey under, uh, identified that. So they said, oh, no, if you're going to Jerusalem, no, 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 you should be going to Gerizim if you're a real man of God. Luke 9.54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Seems right, doesn't it? Well, now, read that in light of the Middle East. Shame on our society. By we not welcoming Jesus... They heaped shame on him and his disciples. And in that society, shame needed to be paid off with retribution. See, the Bible mitigates tribalism. In tribalism, if you kill one of ours, we kill five of yours. And if you kill five of yours, we kill ten of yours. And murder increases exponentially when you live under a retribution system. We have a YouTube channel that we're putting up sermons I did on Ten Commandments a long time ago. One of them is on thou shalt not murder. 
you should watch that because I learned a lot because it was 10 years ago. And I talked about the number one cause of murder is vengeance. And when, and tribalism lives according to vengeance. We have tribalism that happens in America. It's called gang warfare. You kill one of ours, we kill five of yours. You kill five of ours, we kill 10 of yours. It could be however they, they organize themselves and whoever it might be that does it. But when that happens, you don't have civilization, you have tribalism. Now the Bible, starting with the Old Testament, tells us not to take vengeance. And people that think this Lex Talionis, um, the an eye for an eye, is a vengeance, is vengeance. Go watch that video on, on our CIC YouTube. No, it, it was a restraint on vengeance. You can't do any more. In other words, one eye here, I'm going to take ten. See, vengeance has to always get more. The Bible says you can't have more. That's it. Then Jesus says, do not take revenge. He makes it even stronger. Do not take revenge. In a civilized society, you have the rule of law and a criminal justice system that restrains evil. And it stops the vengeance cycle. So just be aware of that biblical worldview. So here in Luke 9, there was a shame done to Jesus, so they wanted to take vengeance and kill as many Samaritans as they could and use God to do it. We're going to call it on fire. Who was it that wanted to do that? James and John. Here's my reading. John and Peter, but John was there the first time and wanted to call down fire. Now, Acts 8.15. Who came down? Peter and John. So John was in both places. And prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. There's no hint of suspicion concerning the Samaritans, which they had earlier in Luke-Acts. The willingness of Peter and John to pray for the Samaritans showed a change of heart. That God had done something since Luke 9 to change Peter and John. And I'll talk about the Ordo Salutis here maybe in a few weeks, but hopefully today. Now... Let me do a I'm going to flip forward and then we'll go back. Pray had not fallen on any of them. They've been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They began laying their hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit. Let me give you my reading. I think there's irony. I had to decide, did Luke intend this or am I just thinking cleverly? I think Luke intended it. Because it specifically says... John was there and wanted to call down fire to consume them. Later, John is there and he calls down a different kind of fire, the Holy Spirit. Remember in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles, he appeared as great tongues of fire. The reason John 
was not allowed to call down fire to kill them was that God's plan was to send the fire of the Holy Ghost and save them. And John was there both times. He had no idea when he said, let's call down fire, what God had in mind. And John is there, and the fire of the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them. The thing that shocked me, I have all these commentaries and really good ones. Only one, a couple mentioned the incident in Luke 9, but they never made the connection with the fire. So I thought, well, I can't have a novel thought. Maybe I'm wrong. So I called Eric. Eric, does this, do you think this is a valid reading? And he got all excited, thought it was. So what else do I need? No, I think it's a valid reading because it's unique that they wanted to call down fire and God sent the fire of the Holy Ghost, as the Pentecostals say. So they, they received the Holy Spirit. Now here's someone, uh, Paul Hill, who comments on this. He's one of my commentators. The closest parable, parallel to the experience of the Samaritans is that of the disciples of John in Ephesus, who were first baptized and then received the Spirit when Paul laid his hands on them, Acts 19, 5 and 6. Obviously, Acts presents no set pattern. The Spirit is connected with becoming a Christian. Sometimes the Spirit is connected with the laying on of hands, sometimes not. Sometimes the coming of the Spirit precedes baptism. Sometimes it follows. The Spirit blows where it wills, John 3, 8. The Spirit, says Paul Hill, cannot be tied down to any manipulative human schema. Though Peter, through Peter and John's participation, the Samaritan mission was given the stamp of approval of the Mother Church in Jerusalem. Here's what I believe. See, when I was a Pentecostal in the early 70s, we were always trying to prove tongues is the sign of the Holy Ghost. So then we just went through all these cases trying to prove that. But it doesn't really work, all right? There's no, that's what I mean by ordo salutis. What does ordo salutis mean? Yeah, order of salvation. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. Any discussion of ordo salutis, it's Latin, is always talking about logical relationships, not chronological ones for the most part. Is that right? What comes first? Regeneration or faith, for example. Reform says regeneration precedes faith. The Arminians say faith comes first and then regeneration. But these are, these things just happen. Now, why did the Holy Spirit not fall upon them before or during the time of being baptized in water? I'll tell you what I believe, and I think there's good evidence for it, especially given what happened in Luke 9. The coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Samaritans was a sign to the apostles. This was a sign to prove to the apostles themselves that God saves Samaritans. 
They wouldn't believe it otherwise. They were the ones who rejected, were rejected by the Samaritans. They wanted to call down the fire. God wanted them there to endorse what had happened through Philip and to see God accepted the Samaritans. Later, when we get to Acts 10 and 11, Peter preaches to Gentiles. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And then he ate with them, signifying a fellowship meal. Later, other apostles said, what are you doing eating with Gentiles? How did Peter justify eating with Gentiles? He said, he told them the story of how they received the Spirit like they had. And when Peter recounted that, the other apostles started rejoicing. Well, God does save Gentiles. It's not that Jesus hadn't told them that. It's just too hard to believe. Gentiles are unclean. Yes, and then we got to be done here. Just another application or implication about the disciples wanting to call down fire. It shows a not, a not a forgiving spirit, not a loving spirit. And it's something that we as believers all need to, you know, they were believers, they were true disciples, but yet they needed to be uh, transformed more in our heart. You know, it's, yeah. it, it, it reveals a bad, I think Eric talked about this last Sunday, you know, it yeah. reveals a, uh, a spirit yeah. that's not right in us. And we, you know, yes. so. Good, that's a good point. It's a good application. As we close, dear saints, We've got to guard our own hearts. We can be so prejudiced about whatever and whoever that we care more about our feelings than about the salvation of the lost. And I've said many times that calling down a fire that James and John wanted, God did not give that power to Christians. If he did, we'd all be dead in the church. We get mad at somebody and zoop, they be gone. Not much, not to mention all the drivers out there. Oh, what happened to them? We're not good ones to have that power. We get too angry. Let's apply it. Whoever we may go to, do we know ahead of time who God is going to save? Yes or no? No. So we don't know. When I'm in Canada, I'm going to preach, you don't know what you don't know. You might say, why would you send a guy to Canada? (laughs) Well, there's a reason for that. We think we know what we really don't know, and we've got to be corrected. What we don't know is who God is going to save. So we need to have a loving attitude toward everybody. And I'm pointing to myself. I need that especially people at the boat landing. <laughs> I, I, I tell you now, I kid you not, I'm working on that one. I'm, I'm, I got convicted last time I went. On the way home, I said, oh, God, forgive me. I got mad at the boat landing again. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done and how we can learn. Help us to be more concerned about the coming of the Holy Spirit than about our wanting to take vengeance. Help us, Lord. We need our hearts changed so that we'll be loving. Help us learn in Jesus' name. Amen.